Kent Garrett. Welcome to another edition of The Last Negroes at Harvard. There were 18 of us in the Harvard College class of 1963. We were born in the 1940s and are now pushing 80. In 1959, we entered as Negroes, but graduated as Blacks and African Americans. We have survived Jim Crow, the civil rights struggle, the Vietnam War, the war on poverty, the war on drugs, the war on terror, the age of Obama, and now the age of Trump. We have a lot to say and a lot of people we want to talk to before we leave the planet. In this episode, we talk about the history of race. Our guest is Cord Whitaker, an associate professor of English at Wellesley College. He has written a book titled Black Metaphors, How Modern Racism Emerged from Medieval Race Thinking. With me are two of my black classmates, John Woodford from Ann Arbor and Jerry Secundi from Pasadena. Plus, we are joined by classmates Bill Collins from Aiken, South Carolina, Marcy Benstock from New York City, Nick Bancroft from Medfield, Massachusetts, Mason Morford from Freeport, Maine, Doug Shapiro from Louisville, Kentucky, Alden and Marianne Briscoe from San Mateo, Hampton Howell from Nashville, Tennessee, Ken Manister from Los Altos, George Allen from Los Angeles, and Elizabeth Woodford from Ann Arbor. Here's author Cord Whitaker. But this book is the product of, uh, of some 10 years of research uh, conducted in multiple places around the world. But ultimately, I came to it from uh, spending a lot of time with medieval romances, um, the stuff of knights and ladies, King Arthur, all that stuff you may or may not be familiar with, but that certainly informs um, certainly informs modern popular ideas of the Middle Ages and has for a long, long time now. One thing I noticed while doing that work was that these texts were often concerned with a whole lot more than just chivalry. They were often concerned with East-West relations, relationships with the Islamic world. They were interested in depicting people from the Islamic world, um, including the Middle East and North Africa. They were often interested in depicting people with darker skin um, and tying that to uh, certain value judgments. So that set me off on uh, doing the work that's represented in this book. But as I got more and more down that line of inquiry, I also started noticing some shared rhetorical elements, ways that the texts went about presenting people with darker skin or religious difference, ways that they went about limbing the contours of the relationship between your standard European, medieval, Roman, Catholic, Christian person and your darker skinned Muslim person, uh, or sometimes darker skinned Northern European pagan person, which is a whole other sort of subline of, of where these works go. Um, this coincided with seeing the increased use of the Middle Ages by, um, by white supremacists and other far-right um, 
far right and extreme right uh, uh, political entities in the US and elsewhere over the past 10 years, especially in the past five years or so. Um, so what this allowed me to do was to draw a connection between the ways that people of darker, that, that people of darker skin, um, that people of non-European, non non-Western European physiognomy, that is non-Western European phenotype or appearance, um, got depicted in the Middle Ages, how that helped inform the development of the idea of race, both in that period and later, especially in the Enlightenment, and politics today. So that's what the book broadly does. It starts off with several medieval romances. It moves through some medieval theological texts, um, as well as medieval reception of classical philosophy and classical rhetorical theory from folks such as Aristotle and Quintilian. And it ends with what I call the modern misuses of the Middle Ages for white supremacist and racist political ends. So there's the book in a nutshell. <laughs> so can I ask you, I take it that, that the book basically focuses on uh, Western Europe and the Americas, is that right? It doesn't deal with places like India or China or Africa, is that right? It deals with them only as they're perceived and talked about by folks writing in the Middle Ages in Western Europe. So this book very much investigates the Western European viewpoint. Is it following up on that, uh, following up on that, would you say that basically you're looking at your subject through a Christian lens? I would say that's correct. Um, it's very much concerned with how Western European Christians uh, perceived this material that, that in many cases they got a hold of through the Crusades. I had a lot of classical learning, um, Aristotle, etc., was really much better preserved in libraries in the Arab world. And things were only able to be translated from either Arabic or Greek into Latin and then distributed in Western Europe because of the Crusades. Yes. Um, so, yeah. yeah. And does that mean that uh, perceptions of color and the associated uh, values uh, may have developed independently in the Middle East uh, simultaneously or even before in Western Europe? So what's interesting is you see some really, and I talk about this in the book, you see some really interesting editing that goes on between the ways that color is talked about in, uh, in the Mediterranean world, in the Middle East and the Mediterranean world versus when the same texts get translated into and recopied and edited by scribes in Northern Europe. Right. So for instance, uh, physiognomies, which are one of the, um, one of, I think one of the most interesting um, sort of textual race thinking uh, bits of evidence we have from the Middle Ages. And these are texts that, um, purport to be a science of how you judge people's character based on various aspects of their appearance. Right. Um, not only skin color, but every really minute stuff, I mean, right down to the shape of their eyes, the bridge of their nose, 
how, uh, whether they talk with their hands very much or not. And what these cues are supposed to tell you is, is someone trustworthy? Uh, do they become angry quickly? Do they lie a lot? Do they always tell the truth? And these texts purported to be um, useful for princes, kings, other political leaders, um, and business leaders in terms of who to trust, who to do business with, who to take on as one of your advisors, etc. In the Middle East, where these physiognomies were, were circulating earlier, um, you know, the best skin tone is the skin tone you should be looking for in an advisor is always considered in the middle. You want to look for mediocritas in the Latin. <laughs> and that's described as between white, red, and brown. And some texts add declining toward yellowness and blackness. Hmm. And so as in the middle as you can get. Right. And then um, when some of these same texts are recopied in Northern Europe, the scribes edit them for their new context. So um, one of the most interesting ones, uh, I think, um, in it, a scribe and translator and thinker named um, uh, Roger Bacon, he translates um, everything else from this particular text. He takes everything else around it but change and takes it verbatim, but then changes the color designation to be, you want white and red, and maybe a little bit of brown mixed together but he completely deletes declining toward yellowness and blackness. Huh. Huh. Ford, I'm just curious. When I look at the invasion of Spain by the Moors and then the ultimate expulsion, expulsion was it really race-based? Was it religious-based? Was it just, were the two intertwined at that point in time? Because they certainly, the Moors certainly came in with, frankly, in many ways, a superior culture, a superior education, et cetera. <laughs> It was, I mean, it was a highly politically fraught situation. Um, the way the Spanish kingdoms were, you know, some of them remained under Christian rulership, others under, as, as you point out, Al-Andalus ends up under, um, under Muslim rulership. For a long time, historians considered um, Spain an interesting case of convivencia, meaning living together, suggesting that everyone lived together in a completely non-fraught way, um, which uh, later historians, and by later, I really only mean in the past couple decades, have challenged those notions and shown that in fact, what you have are, are you know, highly, um, highly politically contentious and politically sophisticated relationships between um, the rulers of the multiple kingdoms in Spain. And between, you know, between those doing business and operating day to day in those places, Muslim, Christian and Jewish communities. Um, so everything that goes on in medieval Spain is really very, very, very highly political and complex. Um, to the question of the relationship between religious difference and racial difference, they're highly intertwined. I argue that in the Middle Ages, uh, certainly in Northern Europe, but also in Spain, the 
what matters most, the primary concern is religious identity and skin color and other racializing attributes um, are used as a tool. They end up really developing as a tool for managing religious conflict and interreligious interaction. The medieval church, its ultimate goal is to, um, you know, is to have global dominion, right? Its ultimate goal is to compete against Islam, to um, compete against the other competing churches, who we don't talk about nearly enough. I do talk about this somewhat in the book, um, but certainly, you know, against the, the Byzantine church, against the Nestorian church. Um, so the church is concerned with global dominion. That means that church thinkers recognize they want and need people to be involved with the church on all three of the known continents at the time, Europe, Africa, and Asia, so that what people look like in terms of their phenotype doesn't, doesn't ultimately matter. However, you end up with a discourse operating under that one that does suggest, well, if someone has darker skin, they may not be Christian. And if they're not Christian, then that opens up the fact that you know, we may need to, to try to convert them. We need to decide whether we will try to convert them by preaching, as some were arguing we should do, or whether we should try to convert them by military force, as others are arguing we should do. Um, so in short, what ends up becoming race, and I call it race thinking, in the Middle Ages, because it's not racial ideology yet. But what ends up becoming race functions as a tool for um, the medieval church. And it's only when we get into the new world, once the church has had a series of schisms, once the Protestant Reformation is on the rise, that the church doesn't have that kind of hegemonic power anymore. And what becomes most convenient for a lot of people is taking those tools the tool of race thinking and elevating that to elevating that to the primary position because there's money to be made off of it. Hmm. That was a long answer to your question, but I hope good answer. It, uh, <laughs> hope it sufficed. Sure, and I you guys are gonna have to forgive me. There my I have one cat out of the three, and this one prefers to be in any and all Zoom meetings I have. <laughs> so you will see a lot of her. <laughs> I forget the name of the science, the so-called science that used physiognomy to try and determine character notoriously as used by the Nazis. And I'm wondering, did, they, did the Nazis develop that independently or was that informed by the earlier? Um, Will be no. Yeah. Phrenology, right? Phrenology, exactly. Well, that was just one of them. Yeah. It was just one of them, yeah. yeah. The, you know, all of those physiognomic <laughs> sciences, including and especially phrenology, really became quite, quite popular again toward the end of the Enlightenment, um, especially in the 19th century. It was used, uh, used even in criminology um, to try to decipher the criminal character, which which ideas of criminality, of course, were also quite bound up with race in the Victorian period. Um, so the Nazis get their, their use of physiognomic science, or we would now say pseudoscience, from a variety of sources, from, um, from Enlightenment and 19th century uses, 
but also from medieval uses. And, and, you know, those two things are quite related as well. A lot of what the Victorians were doing, they were also referencing uh, the medieval. Um, the Nazis did have a bit of a fascination with, um, the Nazis did have a bit of a fascination with the Middle Ages in a variety of, of respects. Um, in fact, even uh, some of the SS symbols, um, the uh, Aryan, uh, the black, the black sun of Aryanism as well. A lot of these are taken from medieval artistic motifs. Um, you know, in fact, uh, uh, I believe the black sun comes from some 12th century Merovingian discs that were used in a castle that uh, used just decoratively in a medieval castle that Heimler ended up, uh, ended up taking over and, and controlling. And he saw this symbol and he liked it. And so then he shuttled this symbol over into, um, into to Nazi ideology. Right. <clears throat> I'd just like to ask a couple of questions. Do you uh, see differences among the different parts of Europe in the sense that you have, you know, the English and who we would now call the French and the, 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 uh, uh, the Germanic peoples and so on. I mean, uh, the, I think there's, in the Middle Ages, there was significant differences among them, I think. Well, differences and close interrelation. Um, you know, you really do see in the Middle Ages, rather a cultural continuum um, across a lot of Northern and Western Europe. So for instance, England and France are so regularly in contact with one another, both commercially and culturally, um, that uh, it is, I think it does make sense to actually discuss them as in a cultural continuum. We talked about Spain earlier, and of course, because Spain is more Mediterranean, there are some, some cultural differences. Um, to go back to the, the point of physiognomy, in, you know, in certain Spanish texts, such as the Book of Marvels, um, that text talks about, you know, talks about the, the benefits and, and wisdom that come along with black hair, right? because that's something you're, ultimately, because that's something you're going to see more commonly in Southern Europe. Um, you don't see that kind of focus on you know, on dark hair being a sign of wisdom in a lot of the Northern European physiognomies. In Northern European physiognomies, you're more likely to see worries over red hair. And the fact that red hair means wrathfulness, means that you're quick to anger, um, you know, which is, which is actually a stereotype of redheads that still persists today. Uh, so yeah, so the differences at, at times are quite subtle. And sometimes there's not as much difference between, you know, one culture and another that we would today consider discrete. You mentioned uh, in your opening remarks, dark-skinned uh, uh, people from Scandinavian countries. Who were they? Well, this is interesting. So one of the things that goes to show is that for medieval people, Blackness had a couple registers. Blackness had the literal idea of darker skin. 
And then they were also happy to use blackness metaphorically. It's why I named the book Black Metaphors, really. Um, metaphorically for you know, being much more concerned with the state of a person's soul. So that in a romance like King Horn um, or Havelock the Dane, these are romances that are very concerned with pagans in Northern Europe and also concerned with the, the they're more discursively concerned with the fact that Northern European Christians all had to recognize they had paganism in their past anyway. Um, so it will start describing these very northerly characters who are not Christian and who are usually set in the past as black. Hmm. And in those moments, all we can think is that, okay, well, they're really referring to, um, you know, they're really referring to this, the state of their souls. Their soul is blackened because they, you know, haven't, they don't know Christianity, right. which lines up with some other, um, some other texts that are much more explicit about doing that than aren't, you know, talking about the pagan past, but that will do things like, you know, talk about a, that will set themselves in the reader's present so with the 14th century text, everything about the text says, okay, this is happening around now. And that text will then give you a character who's, you know, steeped in sin and will talk about their blackness, even as it's just described what you're supposed to think of the character's physical appearance. And of course they're white and blonde. Right. Uh, so tell us about uh, sh sh a shimmer. Is that the, the concept in the book about that? Tell us a little about that. Sure. So the idea of shimmer is really my way of getting at, of using a metaphor to talk about metaphors, <laughs> which we English professors love to do. Um, that really comes out of my use of uh, my colleague, Michelle Warren's idea of shimmering philology, where she really uses, um, uses the idea of a mirage to, and the way mirage, you know, both is a real phenomenon that presents in fantastical things, right? It's a real phenomenon of physics that makes you think things are there that are not. And so she uses this to discuss how philology, the study of the study of literature and language, um, especially as it's been as it was deployed in the 18th and 19th centuries has made us in modernity think certain, you know, think certain cultural truths, certain cultural ideas are true when they're in fact based in interpretation and interpretations that were very much influenced by what was going on in the 18th and 19th centuries when people were doing things like editing a whole lot of medieval materials and binding them up into edited texts that we still use today in scholarship. Um, so I took that to shimmer from her for its philological element. But it also lined up quite well with theories of racial mirage that we get from sociologists such as Ruth Frankenberg. Um, really one of the, uh, I think, seminal voices in whiteness studies, who talks about whiteness as a mirage. Um, 
and as a mirage because it's very much the whole idea of, of what it is, the whole idea that it is the norm in the Western world, etc., is very, very highly constructed. And there's a lot of work put in, a lot of cultural work put into maintaining that normativity of whiteness. Um, so she discussed, in order to break all that down, she discusses it as a mirage. So for me, pulling together the idea of the shimmer with what I call the racial rhetorical mirage um, allows me to talk cogently in this book about how the meanings of blackness and with it whiteness slip in and out of view. Sometimes you can see it being put together. Sometimes you can't. Sometimes you just experience it as a fully, you know, as a fully formed truth. Um, so the, the thing I like to, to go back to with Shimmer, and the reason I use it as a metaphor, is I just like to imagine looking at, you know, looking at the sea with the sun shining on it and the constant interplay of the places where the light is reflected and places where the light is being absorbed. They're constantly moving, they're constantly trading places as the wind blows across the surface of the water. And I think that's a brilliant metaphor for how we, um, for how the idea of race and the idea of blackness in particular functions in the modern world. So if, if we flip the uh, point of view, are there works from the uh, cultures of the darker peoples of the South representing the light-skinned people uh, are there verbal or pictures of how those people looked at these lighter people? Did they have a, any kind of similar uh, systems of, um, you know, interpretation and attribution, attributes of uh, attributing to them qualities based upon their being lighter? Thank you for we, that we, question. The cowboy movies we hear, you know, the Indians calling people pale face. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for that question, John. And and yes, um, you know, one of the, uh, I, I don't get to treat it much in the book, right? Because the book is very much about the Western, Northern and Western European Christian worldview. But even within the texts that, that they use to build up and reinforce that worldview in the Middle Ages, <laughs> sometimes another worldview creeps in <laughs> it gets gets uh sort of mirrored mm -hmm. so the nestorians are a really interesting case right? because the nestorian church was a major competitor of the roman catholic church in in the medieval period and the vast majority of folks in the nestorian church were in the indian subcontinent somewhere you know somewhat other places in Asia, but huge concentration in on the Indian subcontinent and including a lot of darker skinned peoples. Um, you know, and, and this church had split off from the uh, from the, the Roman Catholic Church some centuries before, essentially over Nestorius's theology regarding uh, the Virgin Mary. Right, and the, the status of the Virgin Mary vis-a-vis -vis Jesus and God. And so this church really you know, went this way, it diverged 
and had its own traditions developed and developed mainly by you know, darker skinned practitioners and thinkers. So by the time you get to the Middle Ages uh, in a text like The Three Kings of Cologne, which is one of the ones I treat in the book, which is about the, the, the three kings or the three magi who worship Christ at, um, you know, after his birth. Because that text is very much um, about the known world, because in the Middle Ages, you always represent one of the kings is from Europe, one is from Africa, one is from Asia, because that binds together the whole world under, under the dominion of Christ. So it's a great place for seeing how and, and, and whether worldviews from those other parts of the world creep in. And there's one spectacular place where they do. Um, the Nestorians um, depicted many of their saints as darker skinned people because that matched them. <laughs> mm -hmm. And in the process, because you know, they were still working in a Christian tradition and a certain binarism between light and dark in the Christian tradition goes back at least to the second century with Tertullian and also the gospel of Nicodemus. And so there, there's a lot of apocryphal, uh, apocryphal texts that deal in light and darkest opposites. <clears throat> so when the Nestorians were making all their saints black, they naturally made all their devils white <laughs> because you had to visually convey the opposite, <clears throat> right? Oh, so when this gets picked up by the writer of the Three Kings of Cologne, who was a cleric named John of Hildesheim, he, I mean, he just absolutely freaks out. <laughs> so there are several of the manuscripts um, that, you know, that just have several passages that just absolutely go off on how wrongheaded and wicked it is that the Nestorians think their devils are white. Devils can't be white. Devils can't be white. <laughs> You know, here in Detroit or in the Detroit area, they have the Shrine of the Black Madonna. Yeah. I don't know if that means that I've never looked and see what it is, but they talk about it a lot. What is that? Well, see, so I, you know, I don't know that much about Detroit's shrine, but I, I'll tell you um, the Black Madonna at the Cathedral of Chartres in France is a very, very big deal <laughs> and a subject of much controversy. <laughs> For years, many people would go to um, would go to venerate the the Black Madonna. Um, especially, a lot of darker skinned Christians around the world would go to venerate this Black Madonna. And then, during a re uh, during a conservation a few years ago, um, the conservationists felt that all that darkness was actually just from soot and, and dirt of, of collected <laughs> centuries. And so that now that they've restored her, she is, you know, rosy cheeked and, you know, and her skin is white as a lily. So this is, this is really, you know, no one has quite solved this problem, except for the fact that we do know that for medieval um, art makers, especially in the church, poly polychromy was really important. So, you know, it was not at all uncommon for the statues today that we go visit them today and they're just stone 
or they have no color. They were actually often really vibrantly painted in mm. the Middle Ages. And medieval people would not have been above coloring her dark skinned at one point and then doing a repainting 30 years later, coloring her light skinned, right? Because while medieval people were really interested, I think, in using skin color hermeneutically, interested in using it metaphorically, they didn't have the same concerns with the hard and fast, um, hard and fast identity constructions based on skin color that we do. So, you know, so this is why you can have a medieval text that depicts, uh, the first one I talk about in the book is called The King of Tars, that depicts the Sultan of Damascus as this really horrible anti-Christian guy and black skinned until he converts to Christianity, at which point he miraculously turns white. Wow. So you can have a text that does that on the one hand in the same world where the patron saint of the Holy Roman Empire is black. And that was St. Maurice. Um, you know, and St. Maurice is at least from about the mid 1200s in near the seat of the Holy Roman Empire in Germany, he's almost always depicted as with sub-Saharan African features. Hmm. So you can, it's easy for stuff to circulate together where, you know, you can be, you know, black and completely holy and where blackness can mean threatening Muslim other. Mm -hmm because it's not really about blackness per se. Right. It's about what the conditions are, what um, sort of what environment that blackness appears in at that time. Or you mentioned early on, uh, when you first started talking about uh, kind of the, the coming together of religions and different peoples in, uh, in Europe, and that, that there was the development of a preference for a kind of a mixed color uh, in terms of viewing people, giving them political positions and so forth and so on. And um, I've been wondering whether that found its way into uh, artistic expressions outside of say, uh, you know, the Americas. I mean, my recollection, which is now very out of date, I guess, of art history, at least Western art history, I don't recall uh, being impressed with seeing a lot of images that looked to me like they were a mixture of races. And so I'm, I'm curious about what the, this earlier, early representation that you described um, found its way into people's uh, ideas of, of beauty and what is beautiful, at least in terms of uh, people and their, their faces and physiognomy and so forth. Hmm. Well, so I, I think I need to clarify your question a little bit. I'm not sure at what point in what I said earlier, I talked about early artistic representation of, you know, of mixed race people. Um, in the Mediterranean, what you have is art, artistic expression of, you know, a middling, very much a middling skin tone, right? Which they wouldn't have necessarily perceived as, you know, as a mixing of races, 
they would have just perceived that as, you know, the proper skin tone because essentially it's describing a Berber, uh, you know, a Berber skin tone and you know, what we would today consider an Arab uh, skin tone, which is of course, biologically fitting for the Mediterranean and the Middle East and, and North Africa. So, um, so yeah, so that, that's what we have there. They wouldn't have considered that a, a mixing of races. They were just trying to describe it as between brown, between white and red and brown and black and yellow. Is that what you were referring to? Well, I guess not exactly. I mean, I wasn't thinking so much in terms of how their notions of racial differences uh, influenced uh, their preferences, although obviously that must have played a big part, but just uh, the extent to which the particular preference itself for some sort of an intermediate coloration for skin tone uh, uh, found its way into uh, notions of uh, what is beautiful and how that found its way into paintings or you know sculptures and so forth and so on. Yeah, so so the idea of so you're really asking about the aesthetics of it, the idea of that which is beautiful. It, you know, it's it's really interesting. It it varies. Um, it seems to have quite a bit to do with what was common in a in a particular part of the world um you know the the late medieval uh notion of the the beautiful woman as white as white can be uh in the king of tars romance i talk about she's called white as the feather of a swan um in a lot of in a lot of manuscripts from the period when there are miniatures, when there are depictions of, um, of women, they, you know, beautiful high-class aristocratic women, they are uh, sometimes their skin is just left uncolored completely, right? So that they are literally as white as the page. Hmm. So this gets really interesting because the men are usually colored a little bit darker even highly aristocratic men. Kofi Campbell um, has argued that this has to do with, uh, honestly has to do with the idea of who's supposed to be out in the sun adventuring on the part of high-class men um, versus who's supposed to be out in the sun working uh, on the part of peasant men who are usually depict, depicted as darker. Um, sometimes English peasants are even referred to as you know, as, as black, if there's a a a more higher class person talking to them, a higher class person talking to them. One of the instances I mentioned in the book um, is about a conflict between a peasant who gets mad with a, a local noble, uh, local nobleman, because the nobleman keeps allowing his cattle to graze and defecate in the churchyard. And of course that means you know, he's really kind of desecrating holy ground. And so the churl confronts him, the churl, another word for peasant, confronts him and 
wealthy nobleman starts replying with, well, what does it matter where they defecate? You know, all that's buried in that churchyard are you peasants anyway, and who cares about a quote, Charles Black Bones? So there's another instance of you're having blackness used in a very, very metaphorical way. But it probably also refers to the fact that a peasant would have darker, um, somewhat darker skin from getting a bit of a tan from being outside, even under the weak English sun, I suppose. So that is contrasted with the aristocratic noble woman who's supposed to basically have no reason to ever be outside the castle at all. And so therefore she's as fair as fair as fair can be. Um, so that idea of beauty is also really bound up with class status and occupation. Cord, could, could, could we look for a minute at the uh, Muslim de uh, development through these times as a alternative silo? and see what kind of information that gives about the Christian development, because I've heard two different things, uh, two different analyses of the uh, Muslim world over, through the Middle Ages, et cetera. And one is that it's very tolerant and it's not an accident that they preserve the uh, uh, writings of, of the Greeks and everything very well. And, and the other one is that there was very limited roles for non-Muslim non people and that uh, 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 they, they could do just so much but not be full citizens. citizens. And I, I, would, I would think that might also relate to uh, Muslim concepts of race. Thank you very much. Mediterranean, a lot of what you're talking about revolves around slavery and, and, and enslaving, the business of slaving in the, in the Mediterranean. Um, you know, both, both slavers, on the, slavers on the Christian side were you know, told by the church to not enslave other Christian people, even though you could sometimes try to enslave people to convert them to Christianity, um, the, uh, which I'm sure works terribly well. Um, and then, you know, on the other side, uh, Muslim, uh, Muslim slavers were generally under the edict to not enslave people who were Muslim. So what this means is that a lot of, um, a lot of enslavement in the Muslim world was done to people from Europe, especially Eastern Europe, um, people who would have either been, you know, who would have either been Christian or pagan. Um, and were, um, and were then enslaved in the Islamic world. Now, there's some really interesting examples. I mean, the Mamluk Sultanate, uh, my, my friend and colleague Geraldine Hang in her new book, The Invention of Race in the European Middle Ages, deals extensively with the Mamluk Sultanate, which was you know, a really important fighting force for, um, for the Muslim world during the Crusades. But its warriors, um, its warriors and its, you know, its highest ranking folks were all, um, were all enslaved. They were all slaves, largely from Europe, who were for the most part white. So you do have this, you know, the crusades, uh, the Muslim crusading effort is being propped up and largely carried out 
by an enslaved force of white European folks who, you know, who were, who were of course indoctrinated into, and you know, in some cases enslaved quite young, so really brought up into this role, um, you know, brought up into Islam through, you know, through enslavement. And were really quite a problem for um, for the Latin Christian world <laughs> as they as they fought over the Holy Land. Um, but you could gain quite a lot of preferment. You could gain quite a lot of wealth, and you know there was um, there was uh, not on on the Muslim slaving side. There was not as much of an interest in keeping the slave oppressed in, a, in 360 degrees kind of ways. In fact, what you did is that you, you indoctrinated someone to the point where they felt ownership in the, they felt ownership in the cultural project. So yes, they were enslaved, but they were also in many cases empowered. Um, and therefore didn't necessarily feel the need to, you know, didn't necessarily feel the need to revolt. Um, at the same time, you did also have a lot of uh, sub-Saharan enslavement in the Muslim world too, and you do get negative, um, negative associations with, you know, with, with very dark skin. Um, popping up in, in Muslim texts and literature in the Middle Ages too. So Western Europe is not alone in this regard. The difference is that Western Europe lumps in Middle Eastern folks with Sub-Saharan Africans as black. Whereas Middle Eastern folks, you know, look at the white Europeans as a problem and as the sub-Saharan Africans, as folks to, um, you know, as folks to uh, to denigrate and extract work from. Wow. To some extent, you you've just answered the question I was going to ask, and and that has to do with this: is it a kind of a dichotomy? You're you're white and therefore good, uh, and you're black, which could be a peasant in England who's too much in the sun, or uh, a sort of Arab person or a sub-Saharan African. I can't believe a whole lot of Europeans saw a whole lot of, I don't know, people from uh, Western Africa, Southern Africa. Uh, but, but was it kind of a dichotomy or did, did people understand the, 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 the tri striations of, of ethnicity, color, whatever you want to call it? This is why exactly what you've just asked, Alden, is why in the Middle Ages, I think we can only describe a dynamic uh, called race thinking or race making. Because it's not, it becomes much more of a dichotomy in the 16, 17, 1800s. Um, in the Middle Ages, sometimes you see people treat blackness and whiteness dichotomously. Other times you see them treat it with quite a bit of nuance and striations. And, you know, and, and that is why, as I was saying earlier, why you can have, 
you know, blackness mean evil in the Sultan of Damascus and have blackness mean utter holiness in St. Maurice or even utter holiness in the African one of the three kings. So both those ideas are held in tension in the Middle Ages and they're competing with each other and bounce, those ideas are bouncing off each other. Um, so yeah, the dichotomy is present, but the dichotomy is not, um, it's not the rule in any way, shape or form. So Cord, when, when or how does the, the, the race thinking transform into just out and out racism? I mean, how, what is that progression? I mean, Thanks, Kent. The, the progression occurs, I'd say, from about the end of the 15th century, clear through, um, clear through the Enlightenment, clear through uh, the 18, 17 and 1800s, when you start getting the uh, American, French, and Haitian revolutions, when you start getting the writings of folks like Hegel and Immanuel Kant, um, who, you know, and then eventually Darwin. Um, who really work to, um, they really work to, to coalesce all these different ideas of cultural and religious um, and phenotypic difference into hard and fast notions of race, where you just are one race and that means X, Y, and Z, and there's no getting out of it, right? Very different from, you know, from the, the medieval idea where what matters the most is your religious comportment, your, your, your confessional identity, some would say, um, and that that is changeable and mutable <clears throat> and has to be in order for the church to ever attain the global dominion that it wants. So uh, I end the book actually with the mid 15th century, 1444, um, when Prince Henry, the navigator of Portugal, um, brought in the largest cargo of kidnapped uh, West African people who had been brought to Europe at once to that date. There, were, there was already plenty of enslavement in Europe, some of it the enslavement of African people, some of it the enslavement of Muslim, more Arab people, etc. Um, and then there were also plenty of free, we have to keep in mind, and this is back to your point, Eldon, there were plenty of free people from the Middle East, from North Africa, and even Sub-Saharan Africa, living in medieval, major medieval port cities. Hmm. So if you lived in London in 1350, you had seen, you had seen black people, black people were no shock hmm. to you. Hmm. And you had seen Arab people. Arab people were no shock to you. Um, if you lived in, you know, a, a small village, you know, hundred hundreds of miles away with very little commerce, then maybe you had not seen people of color. But if you lived in or went into major port city, you did. Um, and there are a bunch of bioarchaeologists, um, especially Rebecca Redfern at the Museum of London. We're just doing great research, uh, exhuming 13th and 14th century bodies, testing their DNA and figuring out, oh yeah, this person, you know, this person appears to have been like a third generation Londoner, but they were from the Middle East, you know, or their, their heritage was Middle Eastern. Um, or, oh yeah, this person looks to have grown up in Northern Africa 
and probably moved to London, you know, when they were in their 20s. Right? So, you know, we can dis decipher that sort of thing from, um, from DNA now. And that's, that's really quite nice. Um, but, uh, but yes, yeah, so all this is to say it's, it's a long transition. One of the things I like to point out to my students when we're talking about this development is that if you go back to ancient Rome and you look at Pliny's writings, Pliny's famous natural history, which is an encyclopedic work. He's really trying to treat the history of the whole world and all of its nature, but all from a very, very Roman, very Rome-centric point of view. He talks about Northwest Africa and he describes the region of the Atlas Mountains having one, at least 118 different gens a Latin word that we uh, regularly translate as races in modernity. But he describes that in just this one region, the Atlas Mountains, there's, there's 118 different races. And then it gets very nuanced, and, but there's also a lot of overlap, et cetera. By the time you get to the Enlightenment and you have a, a, something like a, a text uh, 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 like uh, Carl Linnaeus's, or Carl von Linné's uh, Systema Naturae, his system of nature, he reduces all the races in the world to five. And these are highly geographical, European, African, Asian, American, and I guess what we would now call Australasian. Um, when you have 118 races in just one small region of Northwest Africa, race is not that politically useful. It's not that economically useful. When you reduce the idea down to five globally, now, you can, now it's very useful economically and politically. You can get people who are in fact quite disparate to sign on to the idea that they are all one race, so they can band together their resources to battle against or oppress those people over there who you can now conceive of as all one race. Yeah. Oh, interesting that, that science, which is supposed to be seeking new knowledge, gets into these relatively, you know, it's both complicated and useful, but these systems of classification and then assigning values to them in a way that, uh, I don't know, it's quite, it seems fraught to me. <laughs> if I could pick up on that, Liza, uh, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the concept of race, it seems like was, was highly dialectical in the uh, Middle Ages. And then along comes the kings of dialectic Kant and, and uh, Hegel, and they crystallize it in, 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 into polarities. That's really very, very well put. Yeah. Um, you know, and that's one reason why the book I'm working on now, which is on the Harlem Renaissance and the Harlem Renaissance intellectuals' uses of the Middle Ages for, um, for their own racial, political, and I would say anti-racist ends, um, involves, you know, uh, work such as Du Bois's, where he, you know, W.E.B. Du Bois very much takes that Hegelian dialectic and turns it on its head 
by arguing for and, and, and trying to depict a reintegration of those, you know, really trying to, to offer the idea of how we might reintegrate the split consciousnesses that Hegel gives us in the, the, um, uh, in the phenomenology of spirit. I have to look back at my shelf there in order to not call it the spirit of phenomenology. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, so, you know, that notion that we can reintegrate is Du Bois recognizing exactly what you just said, that they've taken this, that Kant and Hegel have taken this dialectical notion and split it into poles and not given us all the resources we need to reintegrate and get rid of the dichotomy, get rid of the binary. And that's what he's striving to do in the Souls of Black Book. As far as what the Middle Ages can offer though for our conceptions of history um, and, and for what we want the present and the future to be, I would say it's showing that, showing that race is not a natural concept, rather that race is built that it was constructed for at particular times for particular purposes. And looking at that construction in the Middle Ages shows us that it hasn't always been around. So it doesn't always need to be around. That is it for this episode of The Last Negroes at Harvard. I'm Kent Garrett. You can hear more episodes on our podcast and you can read all about us in the book, The Last Negroes at Harvard.